0: Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and my colleague is Paul Rickard. Hello, Paul. Look, I'm good, Peter, oh. now that
2: uh, lockdown is, I won't say over, but it's coming to an end and yeah. the states are now talking about uh, easing restrictions. We'll see the first of those. In, we've already seen some, but some in the big states from uh, fr- from the start of the weekend. I guess one of the questions, though, Peter, is uh, not so much about the easing of restrictions and which industries are going to recover quickest, but one of the other questions, so what are the things that, in a behavioural sense, uh, are going to be permanent changes from the, having you know six to eight mm. weeks of this lockdown. What are the things that uh, won't change,
0: or, or or will really start new trends? Mm, um, yeah, in and, 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 to, and to answer those questions, we've got the great Bernard Salt. Is arguably the best. The most well-known demographic expert in the country. Bernard's going to be talking exactly about that. And then I think a lot of us, of course, I think some of the information he'll give us will be good for even working out where we want to mm. invest. But one area where we all love to invest historically has been the banks. They've been under pressure. So we'll be talking to Tim Dring from EY. He's the bank specialist there. He'll talk about how the banks have performed recently, you know, because they've yep. done the report. Well, we've had we've
2: had uh, each of the th- ANZ National Australia Bank and Westpac bring out their half-year reports Mm. for the half-year ending the 31st of March. And today, of course, we had Commonwealth Bank with a third-quarter trading update, so we're right up to date. This is the time to be talking about banks. Yep. And- Live them or loathe them, I mean, our super monies, most super monies, most of us as personal investors
0: have got a lot of bank stocks. Yep, without a doubt. And most people, when they construct a the portfolio, will have banks as a mm-hmm. sort of a, a foundation. But then we're going to talk to Tony Featherston. Now, Tony is a star writer for us uh, with the Switch Report, was former editor-in-chief of BRW magazine, very good stock market analyst, never been a fan of the banks, but he wrote a story uh, last week saying... I'm now a big fan of the banks. we'll, we'll see why Tony has changed his view I, on banks.
2: I think that'll be really interesting, Peter,
0: because I knowing Tony as I do and
2: having followed Tony for more than a decade, mm. I, I reckon he's one of the sharpest minds in the country astute. about shoot. That's the word I was looking a, for. Shoot <laughs> judge. When it comes to talking about sort of not not necessarily what's gonna happen tomorrow or the next mm. couple of days in the market, but stocks with a medium term outlook, mm. Tony's one of the best. Okay. So with any further If not the best.
0: So of course, me, outside, re- outside the great oh, Peter okay. Switzer. How about, yeah, listen yeah, to this guy I had here. to. Uh, uh, okay, fair enough. I didn't want to do any bruising. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. No, look, my <laughs> ego is not that big. It's big, but not that big. And without any further ado, let's go to the great Bernard Salt. Bernard is the managing director of the Demographics Group, writer, media commentator, long read in the Australian newspaper. Um, and in a sense, he specialises in kind of understanding us and he's probably most famous observation of the young people of Australia was connected to smashed avocados, which got him into a lot of trouble with a lot of young people. Bernard Salt, uh, great to talk to you. Hi, Peter and Paul. So, Paul, uh, Bernard, before we go any further, we should actually just revisit your alleged unfair observation about young people and smashed Mm -hmm. avocados, which I think also got Tim Gurner, the developer, also got into trouble. I don't know whether he copied it from you or you copied it from him, but either way, you both got into smash avocado viral problems on the internet. So what was the basis we, of that?
1: We, we did indeed. This was um, October uh, 2016, and um, I wrote a column, and it was a parody of middle-aged people mm. uh, who turn up to um, the cafes and um, quietly note to themselves and whisper to themselves about, and then in a finger wagging way, say, "Look at all these young people eating smashed avocado. Surely they should be saving for a house." It was all done <laughs> yeah, as a funny. as a critique, yeah. as a critique of baby boomers <laughs> and not of millennials. Yeah. But of course, when Twitter just takes that that two sentences out of the context of a parody, mm. it didn't look good. <laughs> and um, I saw that tweet go live at six twenty-seven on the Monday morning after it was published, and I thought, "Oh, this doesn't look good." But then again, I thought, "Oh, what? when everyone reads the full article, they'll see that I was—I was—it oh, was a satire of mm. baby boomers." But of course, no one—no one reads the full that, article. They that. just go on what uh, you know. That's look—that's fine. The reality is that. Um, uh, you know, it's it, it certainly touched a nerve and it uh, has gone global, uh, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think most people these days have realised that actually that wasn't the intention. But uh, anyway, it was, uh, yeah. it was an interesting time, I can
0: I can assure you. Every time I see smashed avocados on Victorian <laughs> breakfast menus, which seem quite expensive, I do work out why young people can't afford houses, but that's just another story. It's, it's,
2: now, it's now the boomers that have the smashed avocados. Because oh, yeah, we, <laughs> we can
0: afford it after franking credits have been forgiven. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, listen, Bernard, what well, well, Paul and I are keen to find, is what, what you're thinking about this period of where people have been locked down in their homes, um, you know, forced to hang out with their children longer than they've ever, ever had to before in their entire life. Um, the, the changes that are coming through, which ones do you think are going to be set to stay?
1: Well, there is a tremendous amount of change. The, the one that I think is the most profound and the one that is most interesting is the proportion of Australians who work from home. Up until um, the coronavirus, barely 5% of the Australian workforce work from home, as measured by the census. I've been watching that figure for the last 20 years at each census, thinking, oh, with, you know, going from modems to 3G or 4G or 5G or whatever it is, surely more people will work from home. But mm-hmm. it hasn't budged of 4 or 5%. I think, and, and currently at the moment, I, there's probably 35 or 40% of people being forced to work from home. I don't think that it's going to revert back to the 5% figure. We can check it at the census in August of next year and I think that it will be something like 10%. What this has shown, bosses and workers, is that many people, not everyone, but a far greater proportion of the population can be very productive working from home. What that means is that the home office must transform and um, the first thing, that will happen is uh, the the home, home office will have a broadcast outlet, so home office broadcast outlet, outlet that's the hobo space, um, and then the broadcast outlet can have a Zoom option. That's the bozo space. I don't think that one's going to take off. Um, <laughs> no. But but uh, also uh, things like just on um, that
2: um, just on that burner. Do you think uh, that it'll be both people working? Permanently, either with five days a week, or do you think employers also will be more accommodative where perhaps we'll see people come into the office one or two days a week and work from home three days a week? Do you, how, do, how do you think that all sort of, that, that plan I, will I, come out?
1: I, I do think that even today, that far, a far greater proportion than 5%, prior to the coronavirus, more than 5%, people would, my staff, for example, would say, I'm going to write a report from home, but they, they say that they work in an office generally. So there needs to be work spaces for people to check their emails, to do the odd report or or whatever. Uh, I do think that the model going forward will be not people necessarily working five days uh, a week, but it might be four days or it might be uh, eight days a fortnight, nine days a fortnight, for example. Mm. They do see the benefit of going into the office and collaborating with uh, colleagues, you know, the water cooler conversation um, and you know i think it will it will lead to a um uh, a better a better it's a better mousetrap you know mm. fewer people commuting less stress less cost um and to some extent um it could lead to a strengthening of relationships if you see your partner working in a work environment uh then you i suppose you're more hopefully more likely to understand the the pressures that they are under at any point mm. in time. There's also some, you know, some dramatic changes elsewhere in the home. I think that, that the flower garden out the back will be dug up for a veg patch <laughs> going, <laughs> going forward. Um, and if, if, even if only one partner needs to commute, it means you can sell one car and convert the garage into a home gym mm. and mm. Storage, no storage facility. Is, for all that that, so that space
2: not good for toll road companies and or uh, motor dealers potentially.
1: Well, no, that's, that's exactly right. I think that, um, you know, we might see the emergence of, um, the suburban fortress where people, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we started to put in water tanks because of the millennium droughts, not 15 years ago, but they're still there. Mm. Uh, so we do learn the lessons of adversity and we incorporate them. And what I see is a greater strengthening, uh, almost a fortressification of the family homes storage. Uh, you can work and live and recreate all within the, the suburban home. Uh, the gym is there, almost self-contained, uh, if you like. Mm. Very different to the world that we've come from, which was very social, very gregarious, kiss each, kissing each other on the cheek, tables very close together in cafes. All of that, all of that will change
2: going and, forward. And Bernard, do you think that, um, just to play that theme out a little bit further, does that mean also, because that, that we have seen in a sort of a... In Australian society, following the pattern overseas, we've seen, you have know, seen greater concentration in the cities, uh, more apartments, less houses. As we sort of follow the sort of most sort of Manhattan feel, does it also mean we'll go back to uh, bigger houses? Do you think? I, I do.
1: I do think there will be a premium uh, associated with uh, bigger houses, separate houses on separate blocks of land, uh, particularly for uh, families um, if you have uh, teenagers in the house. And two partners working from home, you need a physically bigger uh, home and, and and more space. The inner city has been the focus for the last twenty five years or so. Well, maybe it's the the middle belt of suburbia or even outer suburbia, the McMansion mm. belt that uh, suddenly is viewed differently in a world where people don't have to commute every single day.
0: Mm.
1: You you then focus on the uh, on the quality of life that you can create. Within
0: your own portrait. I, 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 to contrast what you're saying, uh, Margaret Thatcher said when she left um, the prime ministership, I think 1991, she said, Home is a place you go to when there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but <Right. laughs> but she goes, she's obviously, yeah, we, we have changed that one. Now, you, in the past, you've talked about decisive shopping. So do you think this is going to be something that we'll move back to or will be ignored?
1: Well, in fact, there has been quite a um, um, a schism in shopping. The retail figures that came out for March show that uh, we are hunkering down and um, shoring up our fortress, if you like. Less emphasis on fashion clothing and footwear. Uh, I wonder whether, in fact, this is, This isn't, you know, the whole bakery of influences and imagery and so forth that seems so important going into the lockdown. After a while in lockdown, you think, you know, that's not important. What is important are different values. It's very interesting. I I often talk about the pillowfication effect. This is the idea that you take guests down past the bedroom to the family room out the back, and they need to glimpse the bedroom and therefore you've had this proliferation of pillows. Well in the lockdown, if there's no chance of anyone visiting your house, then the pillows go. So we might see the end of pillow vacation mm. and a diminution on the emphasis of um, of fashion, of glamour. I mean if you if if you're only going into the office one day a fortnight, then you don't need five suits. You don't need five outfits every, you know, to, to cover your working day.
0: Oh, so it's a tracky and, deck and world. Was, we're talking about a tracky deck world well, taking over here, is
1: it? <laughs> well, I'm well, not quite sure that it's that, but that money then can be spent on other things. Mm. And you could see that in, in the retail sales figures, that money that would have been spent in fashion and clothing is now being dragged into other sectors, which is great for other sectors, but it's a reorganisation of society. My fundamental proposition is that you know we've only been locked down for two months, but 25 million people locked down 24-7 with social media, watching everything in real time, means that we're very galvanised, very focused, like a school of fish, very much focused on what is happening, and uh, that, has a, that magnifies the impact of uh, social change, the, you know, the, the type of values and consumer preferences will come out the other side.
0: But I know you're not a stock market expert, but you certainly are. But you certainly are a watcher of shopping trends and stuff like that. What businesses do you think are going to be challenged going forward?
1: Well, uh, it, it's not so much the the really big destination shopping centres, and I don't particularly want to name them, but we all know them in Sydney, Melbourne, or wherever. Yeah. Um, you know, they are they are destinations in their own right. Uh, I think that the strip shopping centres have been rediscovered within walking distance of suburban homes. I think mm-hmm. that's certainly been, uh, there's been a revitalisation mm-hmm. there. It's that second tier discount department store-based shopping centre out in the suburbs that um, I think will be challenged because a lot of the product uh, can be secured by quick uh, and collect by uh, online retailing and shopping, I, I must say that I've been very surprised how easy online shopping. I have not been a fan of it mm. up until the lockdown, but you know, as <laughs> a consequence of it, I've learned by, I've learned by how to navigate the, the various shopping um, uh, platforms, and uh, I think it's actually very convenient. Mm. I don't have to go to the store; it's actually oh, delivered. Yeah. Uh, I can see the um, you know, the product range and so forth. It's not for everything, but for quite specific items, uh, I can see a shifting in that direction uh, more so going
0: forward. Okay. Another area which could affect your bottom line, mate, your hip pocket is public speaking. Do you think a lot of (laughs) conferences are going to be shrunk down or put on (laughs) online and therefore the fabulously excessive pay that you get when you go up there talking like this could be trimmed as a consequence of it?
1: there's no doubt that um uh, events and uh, you know entertainers speakers um conferences and so forth have been absolutely knocked to sixth, everyone i speak to in this industry around about you know third week of march the whole thing just uh, just collapsed and it is entirely dependent upon freedom of the, of assembly and more than just 20 30 50 or so you need to be able to assemble hundreds of people i think entertainers musicians uh, would, uh, would feel the, uh, the, the same thing. Um, uh, what it has meant is that people had to diversify. Uh, and, uh, I am, for example, delivering webinars these days, uh, as, uh, other speakers that, that I'm aware of. And so that has required new technology, new skills, adaptation. And, and this, I think, is really what, you know, the, the value of this when confronted with this harsh new world reality, you adapt or you die, mm. basically. And and you can see that in restaurants, high-end restaurants, which now have takeaway facilities. Now, I, I do think that conferences and large assemblies will return in, in due course, but the platform of being able to deliver what you have to say by webcast or podcast um, will, will remain in the future. This is the point that you take the learning and it, it, it fashions the product offer and the shape and the success of the business going forward. In some businesses, it's actually prompted them to make efficient, more efficient decisions regarding staffing around digitization, around focusing on marketing, for example, you know, Two months lockdown is a great time for a business to work out what is the business you're in? How well are you operating? What is the technology you need? What is the way forward? And so I would expect to see this sort of, this reinvigorated entrepreneurial spirit burst forth the way in which you get green shoots after a bushfire. Terrible pain and destruction. But out the other side can come something that's even better if you're patient and positive about the future.
0: And,
2: Bernard, I've got to ask you maybe just to conclude. You're a demographics guy. We've had sort of two mm. months of lockdown. What will the sort of population figures look like or the maternity wards <laughs> look like in nine months' time? Will it be up or down from normal?
1: Well, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about that. So uh, we went into lockdown in March. So theoretically, January, February um, could be a boomer, uh, a baby boom. However, I think it will go precisely in the opposite direction. huh um, I, I don't think um, it's, a, it's a want of opportunity that <laughs> that creates um, a, a baby boom. Uh, people reproduce and have kids when they feel confident in their work and in the future. And if your work and the future is not assured, then people say, you know what, maybe we should just hold off for a year, yeah. see how things pan out. Uh, during the Great Depression, uh, the birth rate plummeted, and that was prior to contraception as we know it today. Mm. Uh, so there is nothing more um, that just suppress that urge, I think,
0: than, than troubling uh, economic times. And I also think hanging around with your kids for so <laughs> long, what in the hell was that mistake <laughs> about in the past? Bernard Salt, as always, great to talk to you, mate. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. Okay, so that was Bernard Salt. Always insightful, Paul. But all equally ins- insightful is a great book called Join the Rich Club. Well, it's by, uh, of course, the great P. Switzer. It's a uh, second compliment in one show. Yeah, what's going I know, on? Here? I, I, I know someone yeah, else, Brian, Yeah, bought me for a loan or something.
2: I, I, I know someone else, Brian, who wrote a lot of the. Oh yeah, a lot of the uh, had the IP yeah. in the book, but well, anyhow, Maureen uh, did a lot for the book.
0: I'm going to say you're right. My, my you got to struggle wife. to see
2: the acknowledgement about uh, page 474 at the bottom in in two two font or
0: something. Oh. But he had there, I think. <laughs> you were a media tart, Rickard. You didn't get a big enough accolade. Right, next book, big Accolade. Okay, right. anyhow, look, it's it is join the Rich
2: Club. Uh, right. It's it's your book, Peter. Yeah. Look, it's a great read, $24.95. I mean, yeah. and look, it's it's designed as much as anything for people, I guess not new to markets, but haven't really had the time to think about yeah. investing and how they actually go through that process of, uh, of uh, I won't say building wealth, but at least getting yourself on the with the right Sort of financial yeah.
0: footing, right? And I've tried to put together all the stuff I've learned over 30-odd years talking to some of the smartest people I've been lucky enough to interview or analyse or whatever. And it's all, all together in one book, and it's pretty easy to read. Now, where do you buy it, Paul? You go to
2: switzerstore, all one word and singular, dot com, com. dot au. Join the Ridge Club, $24.95, plus post-digit handling, I guess. <laughs>
0: Well, we all know that the banks have been challenged by the coronavirus and the expectations of the government to get the banks to be a part of the rescue program. Tim Dring is uh, uh, the Oceania Banking and Capital Markets Leader for EY or Ernst & Young, as we used to call you guys many uh, years ago. Tim Dring? that's right. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for coming on the program, mate. Now, Tim... um, just give us a summary of what's happened to our banks and what you've seen in the half-year numbers. Thanks, Peter.
3: Look, it's been a, a point of inflection, I would say. You know, by and large, the banks have been tracking pretty well up to this point. Um, you know, getting costs under control, etc., investing in technology and innovation, um, and, and up until this point, it's been pretty competitive, particularly in the mortgage market, but. Certainly with COVID-19 being declared a pandemic um, certainly changed the world for, for all of us, in particular the banks. And um, it has hit them pretty hard this half with uh, a big increase in provisions. Um, and uh, and that has resulted in a big, big fall in uh, in earnings, um, down nearly 43% uh, across the board for the major banks.
0: Tim, uh, you're a you guy who's been watching banks for a long time. How good are they at getting their provisions right?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, And I think this this period at the moment has has been very difficult because, frankly, there's so much uncertainty. Uh, And this is not something that is just unique to Australia or one industry segment or one cohort of customers. Uh, This is effectively a global economic shutdown. And knowing what's around the corner, particularly when the half-year's Uh, was struck at sort of 31 31 March for the majority of banks. Um, You know, trying to get a feel for where this is heading at that point in time was very difficult. So, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that go into setting provisions, and particularly with the new accounting standard, um, Peter, it is a forward-looking outlook now. So having to project what GDP growth is, having to project what unemployment will be, having to project, you know, what the impact on house prices is is very difficult. Mm. So... I think most will conclude it's it's very uncertain, and um, trying to forecast that with any sense of reliability is is very difficult, and made even harder with a lack of information that's out there.
2: So, Tim, just take us back a step because these aren't actual losses yet; they're just providing for what they think yeah. could be losses. So, just take us back how they've sort of how they made a calculation to do that. What, what, what's gone into their thinking about this?
3: So, it's a really and it's a complex standard, um, when we've moved to um, effectively a expected loss regime, before it was sort of a 12-month outlook, um, as we've moved to this new accounting standard, we're sort of taking a, a lifetime view of a, of a loan portfolio. And uh, as a result, you're having to forecast, you know, what are some of the impacts that banks and, and customers will have to deal with going forward? Um, now, there's, there's some tangible data you can rely on. Um, but there's a lot of intangible aspects to this, and um, particularly the duration—you um, know, how long this peak in unemployment uh, will stick around for, um, and uh, and how long this sort of downturn in GDP. And, and frankly, at this you know this juncture, um, I think initially everyone hoped it was a V-shaped recovery. I think um, you know that's probably off the table, um, and the question is how long is the U? So therefore, the length of that. The duration and extent of that does does make this uh, this very difficult to forecast uh, going forward. So when the banks go through their complex models, uh, no doubt the banking analysts pull it all apart. In fact, you give them more information, they they ask for more, um, and uh, you know then trying to weigh up all of those probabilities, um, being base case, worst case, um, and then trying to strike that that happy medium is is very challenging.
0: Mm. Um. Are the banks in a better position or a worse position because of the cumulative effects of, first of all, the Murray Inquiry and then the Hain Royal Commission?
3: Peter, it's a good question. I'd have to say undoubtedly a better position, I think, in a lot of aspects. You know, the capital position coming out of the GFC with the buffers that have been put in place and Murray you know, forcing the, the banks and regulators to move to a position of unquestionably strong. So almost twice the capital base uh, banks were back in the GFC. Um, so that that is a massive strength. Um, so I think they're well-faced into this. Um, but then secondly, how you treat customers going forward. And I think whilst they're on this sort of customer-centric journey, the Royal Commission really brought that to a head. So it's going to be very different from what that sort of downturn was like in the you know, in the, in the late 90s, the recession in Australia on, on closing positions out and, and people are getting these assets off the balance sheet, I think banks are going to have to work with their customers, particularly small business and retail customers. And I think, uh, that, you know, that Royal Commission has has taught them a good lesson in that. Um, it's a really good opportunity for the banks to effectively regain trust, um, that flight to quality, um, and, and really step up to the plate and... and um, and really stepping up and, and proving some of those uh, facts that were tabled at the Royal Commission are well and truly behind them.
2: Yeah, Tim, they've um, done a lot of things uh, following the um, following the COVID crisis. We've seen a lot of fee waivers on for businesses. We've seen uh, deferral of interest, repayment holidays. Lots of people with mortgages and others have rung up and uh, requested six months off. Are the, are the banks going to be like the government with the with the job keeper? The banks going to have a have a bit of a challenge sort of unwinding this stuff when, uh, you know, it's sort of time to say to people, well, hang on, um, you've had your 6 months uh, free repayment holiday. It's time yeah. now to pay you more. How's that going to play out, do you think?
3: Yeah, it's effectively a, it's a like getting off a drug in some ways, isn't it? but, um, you know, when you, when you look at it, and that's why it's made hard for these, uh, you know, setting provisions in this environment because it's really trying to understand a customer's position when repayments are halted and effectively those arrears are quarantined. Um, it's very difficult. So I think it, it will start to come to a head in the next six months um, towards the back end of the year when those sort of holiday periods do run off um, and uh, and banks start to go back and, and re-rate their SME book and re-rate their commercial book um, when they truly understand the position of some of those customers. And, and no doubt there will be businesses in there that have, that have come out of this quite well. Um, at the same point in time, there will be businesses that, that just won't come out of this and, and they'll be unfortunate victims of COVID-19. Mm.
0: One last question to you, mate, and this is something that actually you know, came up with a few of our financial planning clients. And they, Some of them were really worried that our banks were so vulnerable that they actually took money out and put it into their safety deposit um, boxes and, and things like that. If you had to rate Australian banks, um, how would you rate them in terms of their safety uh, for people's deposit, and let's face it, we know there's a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar deposit guarantee, mm. but clearly these people didn't trust that. How yeah. how safe are our banks?
3: Well, I think when you've got the government guarantee in there, Peter, and it's you know it's capped um, for for uh, customers to two hundred and fifty thousand, um, you know that's significant. Um, so I'd, I'd like to think customers, um, you know, there's a, there's a strong sense. I think the government is there to support. Customers in the event that that the bank did go under, uh, but I think given the capital base where the banks are at at the moment, um, you know they are in a position of strength. And uh, you know once again the government has stepped in behind those institutions through the GFC, and, and that has remained. Um, the government hasn't taken that away, um, and it doesn't apply to large banks. It applies to to all ADIs that are regulated by APRA. So um, I think customers should have a should have a um, you know, some level of confidence in, in our banking system. It is strong. Uh, our banks are well capitalised. They're profitable. And um, you know, particularly coming out of that Murray Inquiry, moving to unquestionably strong has, has really held them in good stead to, to face into these headwinds, frankly.
0: Okay. Tim Dring from EY, thanks for joining us on the program you're welcome. And it's time for a little plug for that wonderful report called the Switzer Report, Paul. Look, our foundation uh, publication,
2: we started with the Switzer Report going almost a decade. got to check the date. But uh, Mm. look, we try to help uh, self-directed investors make smart investment decisions. Switzer Report out three days a week, Monday, Thursdays, and a special edition every Saturday, Peter, that you write uh, and we have some great people, people you get about to hear from, like uh, Tony Featherston. He's one of our – he contributes Star every week. Writers, Star yeah. writers. And In fact, we're going to talk to Tony in just a sec. But Swiss Switzer Report, which you can get from where, Peter?
0: Switzerreport.com.au. Where
2: else, Paul? And it's only $397 for the year. And it should be tax-deductible to a and lot of And it should be tax-deductible. So uh, if you want to know how to invest, what you need to do, some tips, traps, all the stuff, what stocks are going to go up or down – how to put invest your cash for look at the bond oh, market, and the market whatever. Switzerreport.com dot AU
0: Well, um, you know, we Paul, we just talked to um, you know, Tim Dring from uh, EY about the state of the banks after reporting season, but our colleague Tony Featherston in the Switzer Report recently wrote a piece and he thinks that the banks are really good buys at the moment. So Tony, uh, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks, Pete.
0: So um, let's get right to the heart of the matter. I think you says the best buying opportunity of bank stocks in a decade. You're only, you're only a young uh, man, mate. So for a call yeah. like that, it's a, it's a huge call. Uh,
4: yes, it is a big call. I'm not that young, um, Charlie, <laughs> But just by my way of background, I've, um, I've been bearish. I was bearish on the banks for a long time. So in uh, in your mighty Switzer report, I've um, I really avoided banks since about 2015. I, I put a toe in the water late last year with A and Z, but I've I've been bearish. And two weeks ago, I just started to get uh, bullish on the banks after these horrendous falls. And so I wrote that column saying I am bullish uh, to coincide with all the interim reports coming out. Now I just wanted for context, so what I mean by bullish. So if you're in buying banks today with a three to six month um, time frame, don't bother, right? There's, there's, there's better stocks to buy if you're looking for a quick market bounce. So from day one during this crisis in your report, I've been saying buy tech. Mm-hmm. That was the first sector I went to. So I think there are much better sectors to trade than banks right now. The second thing I'd say, if you're investing in shares purely for income, don't buy banks. There's too much dividend uncertainty in the short term, and it could take years um, for bank dividends to recover. And the third thing I'd say is if you think we're all heading towards the Great Depression and a third of all Australians will be, you know, lining up at soup kitchens and all of this, um, don't buy the banks. But if you are a long term investor, which is who my idea is targeted at, a long term investor, you've got a three to five year outlook. If you're willing to take some profits on banks on the way up, um, and use that for income, so you focus on total return rather than just income return, which you should be any all the time anyway, it's a better way to invest, Yeah. Um, I think banks are a good buy. And, and the last thing I'd say to that is, could banks fall another 10% from here in the next few months? Who knows? If, if, if I said either way, I'd just be guessing. Um, but nobody ever picks the absolute bottom turning point for these sectors. And so what you've got to do as a retail investor is say, look, if I buy banks today, they might fall another 5 to 10%. Who knows? But I'm willing to withstand that sort of loss with a view that banks could be 60 to 70% higher in three to five years' time. Hmm. Um, so, so I am bullish on banks um, with those caveats.
2: Okay, uh, so, so let, let, let's go to the reasons why you bullish yeah. on banks, Tony.
4: Okay, so I'm bullish on banks for a couple of reasons. One is I think they came into this, uh, Paul, I think they came into this crisis in far better shape than they did before the GFC. So uh, if you go back to the GFC 2008 over 9, um, as Commonwealth Bank said today in its third quarter trading update, just out today, their provisioning for bad debts, impaired loans, is three to four times better, higher now than it was before the GFC. So banks are in a much better position. They've also simplified themselves a lot. So back before the GFC, we had all the wealth management, life insurance, advisory, mortgage brokers, all this and that. Um, so I think the banks, from a balance sheet perspective, are much better. Um, the second thing I would say, Paul, why I'm bullish on the banks, a lot of it's just valuation. I and mean, you you look at the extent of the price fall: 30 40%, even more negative total returns over 12 months. I was looking at bank share price charts this morning, and you have to go back years to see banks trading at these levels, years and years. Um, Another reason I like the banks is if you look at after the 91 recession, banks were slaughtered during that recession but then outperformed. Mm -hmm. Uh, After the GFC, banks were slaughtered during the GFC but then outperformed. Now, I think it's too simplistic to say, well, after this crisis, banks will automatically outperform. Form, because this crisis, I'm sick of that word unprecedented and uncharted and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but but this crisis truly is like like um, no other. But banks do have a history of, of outperforming after these giant shocks. And personally, I think that will be the case again. And, and the other point, Paul, to your question, why am I bullish on the banks? Look, at the end of the day, it gets back to your view on this health crisis, this lockdown and the economic crisis. And my view, and who knows if I'm right or wrong, but my view has been that this health crisis, in Australia at least, has been a bit overstated and overdone. Um, I don't think we're heading towards the Great Depression. Um, do I think we're going to snap back in this V-shaped recovery that the Prime Minister initially was talking about? No, that's, that's crazy talk. You can't shut down sectors of the economy and just expect them to bounce back with a flick of a switch. I think we are heading for a very nasty recession. Um, you, know, you look at the figures. A million unemployed join the unemployment queue now. Five million on seeker. 1.2 million with the early access to their super. 200 billion of loan deferrals for personal and small business customers. As CBA said today, an extra 1 million inquiries uh, to their website and call centers from this. So it is, it is horrendous. But having said that, I, I really think that when we get into FY21, so once we get through a terribly tough 12 to 18 months, I think from FY21, um, we'll be we'll be slowly back on the road to recovery. And I think we'll look back at the banks now and think that the market overreacted.
2: Okay, so that's the why banks. Now let's go to the yeah. which bank, and you're allowed to... Um disagree with me so let me just give you my position Tony yeah. and uh, just see how you And
0: Paul's not biased given the fact that you work for the Commonwealth Bank See how you react to that He's not biased no, at, no, at I
2: all I remember your career back then Paul back yeah. in those days. Yeah. Well I'm still writing about him so uh, still, cool. uh, Anyhow there, there are two banks or two types Two banks there's Commonwealth Bank and there's the other three This is the major banks mm-hmm. Commonwealth Bank's in yeah. a class of its own And priced for that at a, yeah. a big premium exactly. to the other three major banks of the other three major banks, of course, we're talking about ANZ, National Australia Bank, and Westpac. I'm sort of in the Westpac camp, by a, simply it's been done the worst, and historically it's been a it's been a stronger bank. So I'm sort of in the school of a bit of Westpac and a bit of Commonwealth Bank. But um, interested to know where how you rate the the four banks.
4: Well, I'm with you on the CBA, uh, that it is the best quality bank, and it's the only bank I think at the moment outperforming from a system growth-type perspective. So I'm, I'm with you on the CBA, although it hasn't fallen quite as far as the others. I, I like ANZ, Paul. I just think, uh, and, and look, I, I don't disagree with you on Westpac either, so, so my preference would probably be ANZ, CBA, Westpac, then NAB at the end. Um I just think with ANZ that I really think they probably they have probably been the best governed bank uh, which is saying something in the banking <laughs> sector mm. but I think they have been the best governed bank uh, and that's all credit to their to their board and I mean that's not a, not a good statement because you, you look at their governance and they came out of the Royal Commission better I think than their peers uh, they, they've had the problems, but they haven't had the big scandals that Westpac had with the, with the money laundering or, or CBA have or, or to that extent. Um, they haven't had to make the same extent of loan provisioning. They've had big loan provisioning in their latest result, but not quite the same because they've had a more uh, conservative approach to their loan book. So I quite like ANZ. It's fallen a long way. So that would be my preference, Paul. But having said that, if you said to me, which bank would you buy, I would say to you, don't buy any, buy the sector. I, mean, I was going to um, ask that question,
0: to- Tony. But if, like, Some people say, well, I can't pick, I'll buy the whole four. What, you recommend they buy uh, an ETF that, that pulls these four together.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, so at times like this when there's a big market shock, I think sometimes what you've got to say is, look, Rather than take individual company risk, let's just, let's just buy the sector, uh, and diversify and, and try and reduce that risk that way. And so something like, look, I'm not pushing any particular ETF, but something like a, a VanEck Vectors banking ETF, which you can buy and sell on ARXX like a share. That gives you exposure to the big four banks, Macquarie, Bendigo and Adelaide and um, Bank of Queensland. So you've got seven banks there. Mm. Beta Shares has a, a finance ETF, although that also includes insurance stocks. That's not pure banking. But I think I think an ETF is an interesting way to play the uh, sector from a risk reduction point of view. But if, if you don't like ETFs, then I, I certainly think ANZ, CBA, uh, Westpac,
0: interesting at these level. Uh, Tony, one last question. You, know, you, you did sort of write off the likelihood that dividends could come back uh, quickly. Um, but if this um, economic scenario su- surprisingly is better than people expect and unemployment drops faster than people expect, would you then think that maybe the bank's outlook on dividends could, could turn on a dime if that was the case?
4: Oh, absolutely. That's a very good point. Um, it, it could because they've they've put a lot of money aside for these um, for this provisioning and so on. So it could really change quickly. And and I also think this all this doom and gloom about the economy could change uh, as well if we mm-hmm. do start getting back to work faster. And look, let, let's not forget amidst all this doom and gloom, there's some there's some positives for banks in this in the long term. I, I had a really interesting comment from Westpac the other day in one of the papers. So Westpac has thousands and thousands of tech um, developers work for the bank. They're all working from home. The head of IT at Westpac said, we've seen a noticeable and significant increase in productivity from having people work at home, Mm. these tech developers. Now, that might not last, right, because it's still a bit of a novelty. But he was saying Westpac is now seriously thinking about whether we should have more tech developers, which is a huge chunk of its Mm -hmm. workforce these days, working from home. So, there could be real efficiency gains from banks when the dust settles through this. Mm -hmm. I I think one of the big issues facing the banks is digital transformation, that they need to pull their finger out and speed up their digital transformation. That's going to quicken after this. Um, Go on, mate, go on. uh, I think all this competition with fintechs, which is a real problem, the disruption from fintechs, we are going to see a lot of fintech bleeding cash, unable to raise capital, mm. and people sticking with big, well-known brands. Oh, so yeah. if I was running a bank, thank God I'm not, I would be buying these distressed fintechs, injecting capital into them, collaborating with them, and really going headlong into the fintech space. Because as we know, open banking is due to kick off on, I think, in July. It's been delayed, but the ACCC says it's still happening then. So that's a big deal. And the other thing, Pete, let um, and Paul, let's not forget the banks were crushed by increased regulation and compliance after the um, in the lead-up and during and after the Royal Commission. Now, now the Prime Minister has given the banks a bit of a reprieve on the implementation of Royal Commission recommendations. But it would be a brave government to keep whacking the sector with greater, extra, and extra costly compliance, at least during this. So. Mm. So there might be some relief of banks there as well. And I, I think the other long-term benefit is the reputation of banks has been absolutely trashed. We've seen that in all the various trust barometers. Now, whether you like or love banks, you, you know I think it's undeniable to their credit that banks have stood up during this period. Uh, they've been really good. Certainly in my case, um, you know, I've had a bit to do with the banks. I found them fantastic. Uh, and I think they could get some real reputation restoration mm. Uh, out of it, so, so there's positives yeah. from this
0: as well. Well, there's two things I'd, I'd make uh, as a point to conclude, uh, Tony. One is that those uh, digital people who are productive at home clearly are unmarried with kids. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> That's right. And secondly, we know the banks have been behaving themselves because that great uh, journalist and colleague of ours, Adele Ferguson, hasn't been bagging them lately. So that's another side. Oh, well, that is – yes, I worked with
4: Adele for many years. So that is a big change. Adele's not (laughs) them, but she did great work on the banks. She sure did. Uh, So it's, uh, it's good to see them taking
0: action. Yeah, great stuff. Tony Featherston from the Switzer Report. Thanks for joining us on the program.
4: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Paul.
0: Well, that's the end of the show, Paul. Would you have thought that uh, you know that there would be a, a big demand to invest in banks right now? Look, I'm not
2: surprised, Peter, but I, it's great to have people that have been bearish on banks. Uh, and I've been a mm. bit bullish and wrong. I didn't see COVID-19 coming, as no. did many people. But uh, look, I think to have people like Tony Featherstone recognise that banks are super cheap, uh, you know, look at what's happened in previous recessions, I think it's a good sign. So uh, there's value there, Peter. It may be a, you know, the next couple of months could be a bit bumpy, you know, because yeah. they'll go down. The market wants to sell off; they'll sell the banks as well. But yeah. um, I think they're looking pretty good. For Let's the long sum term.
0: it up as you can bank on the banks. Quitting time! Britain time! <laughs>